So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing our series in him. While you're turning there, I'm going to warm up the time machine because I want to take you back to the 4th century. Things are pretty stable as far as the church is concerned in the 4th century. Martyrdom and persecution are almost a thing of the past. Christians are not experiencing persecution as much as they did in earlier centuries. There's no heat or pressure coming down upon the church from the government because Constantine is the emperor and he is partial to the church. It's good when you have a leader who is partial to the church. Just saying. And so outside the church, things have cooled off. Martyrdom and persecution is now a thing of the past. But now there's a problem within the church. There are people who call themselves believers. They call themselves Christians and disciples. But they are confessing something different than what the church proclaimed for the first three centuries. Things which directly contradict the passage that we're looking at today. In the fourth century, the main issue facing the church was this. How are we to understand the relationship between God the Father... And his son Jesus. Is the son, the son of God, is he created by the father? Is Jesus eternal? Or did he have a beginning point in time? Is the son's essence or nature the same essence and nature as God the father? So the problem facing the church in the fourth century was inside the church. But that's not exactly accurate because it eventually spilled out into the streets. It literally spilled out into the streets. But before I tell you about that, let's read God's Word. And today's sermon will be more of a kind of a sermon lecture hybrid because I want us to go back in time and look at something that happened in church history. Anytime I can bring church history in, I love to do so. And what we'll see today is that if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. If you mess up the person of Jesus, you mess up his work. If you get the person of Christ wrong, you get the work of Christ wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. If Jesus is not God's eternal Son, being loved by His Father in the Spirit, in eternity past, then the gospel is not good news. If Jesus is not God's eternal Son, loving His Father in the Spirit, in eternity past, then the gospel is not good news. If the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if the triune God is not sharing love, in community, in eternity past, before he ever created anything, then the gospel is not good news. Okay, Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read all of verses 15 to 20, but we're just going to be focusing on verse 15 today. Um, Many New Testament scholars actually believe this passage here is some kind of worship song that churches sang in Paul's day. If it is, then this is an example of a catchy worship song teaching good theology because sometimes catchy worship songs teach bad theology. This is one that teaches good. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. My goodness, this passage should humble us. This passage should make us drop to our knees in awe and adoration. Why? Because when Paul said, like we looked at last week in verse 14, that we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love, this is that son that Paul is speaking of, and this is his kingdom. Verses 15 to 23 explain who the son of God's love is, and they explain the scope of his kingdom. And if we want to walk in a manner worthy of him and please him, as we saw last week, we have to know him. We have to know who he is and what he has done for us. And Paul spells that out for us in verses 15 to 23. So who is the son of his love? Who is the son of God's love? Answer, he is the eternal son of God who reigns over all. Jesus, his kingdom extends over all, over everything, All creation, all nations and people groups, all languages, all animals, all plants, all artwork, all music, all everything. But this was being questioned in the fourth century. People began to question if Jesus was the eternal Son of God. And eventually, the internal problems of the church actually began to spill out onto the streets. So think Theological riots, if you have a category for that. Can you imagine a riot over theology? Well, here's what happened. In A.D. 318, a riot broke out in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. People flooded the streets and they were chanting, There was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not. These people believe that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God, but that he was actually created by God the Father. Just, they wouldn't even say that. They would say he was created by God. He was the very first thing that God created. So you had people on one side of the street chanting that Jesus was a created being, and then you had people on the other side of the street shouting that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. It was kind of like that old beer commercial, you know, less filling, tastes great. Do you remember that one? Less filling, tastes great. There was a time when Christ was not. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. There was a time when Christ was not. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Back and forth they went, back and forth on Facebook and Twitter. But it didn't just spill out into the streets of Alexandria in Egypt. It actually spread all throughout the Roman Empire. People went back and forth on Facebook and Twitter debating whether or not Jesus was the eternal Son of God, and it threatened to split the church right down the middle. And so how did the church get here? How did this doctrinal shouting match come about? Well, we owe it to one of the most infamous heretics in all of church history. His name was Arius. 
And here's why the church eventually condemned him as a heretic, because Arius was teaching that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. He believed that Jesus was the very first thing that God created, and then, through him, God made the rest of the world. But how did Arius get there? What led him to believe that Jesus was created by God? Well, we have to go back in time to a Bible church in Alexandria, or a Baptist church in Alexandria, Egypt, where Arius is the pastor, teaching that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. Arius taught that you could point to a date on the calendar in eternity past and say, that was Jesus' birthday right there. But please understand this. Arius didn't make this up out of thin air. Arius was preaching from the Bible, just like most heretics and false teachers do. And he was doing a series on the book of Proverbs. He came to Proverbs chapter 8, where he was teaching on wisdom. And Arius read Proverbs 8.22, which says this, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Now, Proverbs 8.22 is saying that it was with wisdom that God created the world, that God possessed wisdom when he created the world. But the Hebrew word here for possessed uh, has two roots in it, and so it can mean two different things depending on the context. So when Arius was preaching through the book of Proverbs, he took the translation as the Lord created me at the beginning of his work. So it can be translated as created or possessed. Uh, Arius did not teach that God possessed wisdom as he created the world. Arius took the word to mean created. God created wisdom at the beginning of creation. And so for Arius, wisdom was the very first thing that God created. And as Arius is working on his sermon in Proverbs 8.22, the lights go off in his head and he says to himself, there's another place in the New Testament that mentions wisdom. And so he turns to 1 Corinthians, which says this, 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So as Arius put these two verses together with Proverbs 8.22, he comes to the conclusion that one, since Christ is the wisdom of God, according to 1 Corinthians... And since wisdom was the first thing that God created, according to Proverbs chapter 8, then Jesus must have been the very first thing that God created. Do you see how he arrived at this conclusion? Arius believed that since Jesus is the wisdom of God, and since wisdom was the first thing that God created, therefore Jesus must be the first thing that God created. And then Jesus created all other things. So Jesus was more than a human being, according to Arius, but he was not fully God. He did not have the same essence or nature as God the Father. And this was the issue the church was facing in the 4th century. Did Jesus have the same essence or nature as God the Father? So instead of seeing Proverbs 8.22 as saying that it was through wisdom that God created the world, Arius took it to mean that God created wisdom before he created anything else. And since Jesus is the wisdom of God, then Jesus had a birthday in eternity past. Crazy, huh? I hope you think that's crazy. And guess where Arius came up with this idea? Where did Arius get this idea? From the Bible. For instance, 
in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Arius read Colossians 1 and said, See, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the first thing God made, and then he created everything else. But Arius did not understand what Paul is saying here to the Colossian church. Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he makes God seen and known, that he is God, and that to see Jesus You see God because they have the same essence and nature. Jesus himself says this in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus makes the invisible God visible with flesh and blood, bone and tissue, spleen and big toes. We looked at this in our Christmas series, 3D Jesus, looking at the incarnation. But it isn't just in the incarnation that Jesus is the image of God. It also applies to his pre-existence in eternity past. As scholar G.K. Bill says, It is clear that the main thought in verse 15 is of Christ being in God's image before creation began. Paul is speaking of the eternal relationship of the Son to the Father. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing that God created. He means that Jesus has all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. Like the son of a king is the rightful heir of the kingdom. That's how the word firstborn is used. Paul is saying that Jesus is preeminent, the first in rank and honor. But Arius read that and thought Jesus was the first created being. And where did Arius get this crazy idea? From the Bible. Understand this. We must be very careful when we read the Bible because we can make the Bible sing any song we want to. We see that in our culture today, don't we? You see people using the Bible to justify their beliefs and opinions which are contrary to the Bible if they just read a little bit more. With marriage, different gender, different things, people use Bible verses to defend their position that is actually against what the Bible teaches. People use the Bible to justify all kinds of beliefs and behavior because you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. Arius used the Bible. He used God's word. He used the book of Proverbs to claim that Jesus did not exist in eternity past. And this is why we are called to read Scripture in community. It's why Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of Scripture We must read scripture together in community, not just by ourselves. Now, read your Bible by yourself all you want to, but you must read it alongside others in community, in in your local church. When I say community, I'm talking about your local church. I'm talking about our denomination, Converge. We used to be called Baptist General Conference. I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, we changed our name to Converge. So you read it in the community of your local church. You read it in the community of your denomination. You may not know this, but 
10 or 15 years ago, there was a man in our, cong- our denomination teaching what is called open theism, that God does not infallibly know the future. This man was teaching and taught at a, a college in our denomination that, that God doesn't know the future. And so people in our denomination came around and said, this is wrong. This contradicts scripture. So we read it in our local church. We read it in our denomination, if we're a part of one. And then we read it in the community of church history with the creeds and the councils. It can be dangerous to just read the Bible alone. Let me say that again. I'm not saying you shouldn't read the Bible alone. You should. But it can be dangerous if you just read the Bible by yourself because you're depending on your own interpretation of Scripture and not the community of God throughout church history. One of my church history professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham, uh, said it this way. And I'm going to give you an example in a little bit of a, a, a very popular preacher today down in Los Angeles who totally fumbled on this. But I'm going to make you wait until I tell you who he is. He wasn't reading it in community like he should. One of my church history professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham, said it this way. You cannot trust me to be a gentleman with scripture on a date by myself, unobserved and unmonitored. You must send a chaperone. Tradition. I don't want to date tradition, but scripture. I am interested in having a relationship with Scripture, but in order for it to be fruitful, I have to bring in tradition. Tradition helps me stay in the straight and narrow. We need a chaperone when we read the Bible. We need tradition. We need the community of God where the Spirit of God is. We need the traditions that have been passed down to us in the creeds and councils of church history. Otherwise... We'll come up with some crazy ideas about God, just like Arius. But understand this about Arius. Arius wasn't some small-town, backwoods, unknown preacher. Arius was extremely popular in his day. He had the blue check mark next to his name on Twitter. He was verified. He was a very popular Bible teacher, a great communicator. His books were popular. You could hear his sermons on the radio, right after Alistair Begg and then right before Chuck Swindoll. He had a 30-minute teaching slot. And Arius even managed to turn his beliefs about God into catchy worship songs. Did you know that? He was a songwriter. He was like the first Chris Tomlin, just cranking out catchy worship songs after catchy worship songs. But his lyrics were terrible. His songs and the melodies were catchy. They got stuck in your head, and they were so repetitive, so repetitive. But the lyrics were terrible because the theology in his worship songs denied the eternality of Jesus, the Son of God. So Arius would have given Chris Tomlin a run for his money when it came to writing worship songs. He was gifted. And all the churches throughout Egypt were singing his songs, singing his terrible lyrics. His lyrics probably went something like this. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord, our God. You reign forever, the creator, before you were the father. You aren't the everlasting God. Aren't the everlasting God. You were made by him. You aren't eternal. You're the first thing God ever made. The first thing he did create. He made you, then he made all 
the Eagles, something like that. He wrote catchy songs. He was a dynamic preacher. He had the number one downloaded podcast on iTunes. He won every Dove Award for Songwriter of the Year, year after year. He was a sought-after conference speaker. His books were all over every Christian bookstore. People lapped up his theology and his writings like thirsty dogs. But there's a lesson here. Just because you're preaching from the Bible and just because you're extremely popular and just because your church is growing and just because the numbers of members keeps escalating doesn't mean you're preaching the truth. It doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel. And so in the 4th century, a division was sweeping through Constantine's empire because Arius is becoming more and more and more popular. And so some people are on board with Arius, and others are saying, no, he's wrong. And then a bishop named Alexander, you should know his name. Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, brought forth a rebuttal of Arius' teaching. And then later, a bishop named Athanasius took over for Alexander in leading the fight. You should know the name of Athanasius, too. He spent 60 years of his life, went into, was sent into exile five or six times. This is how widespread the teaching was, of Arius was. that He was sent into exile five or six times because he stood his ground. And he said, Jesus is of the same essence and nature as God the Father. Well, Alexander, the first one, was a gentle pastor, generally very tolerant. He did not like conflict, but he knew he had to speak up because what Arius was teaching was not orthodox Christian belief, and two, it was causing divisions and separations in the church and thus tearing apart Constantine's empire. So some churches were on Arius' side, some were on the side of Alexander, and then later Athanasius. But Alexander realized he could not keep having theological battles with Arius on social media. He couldn't keep writing letters to him. He couldn't keep calling Arius out in his sermons. It was time to do something more. And so Alexander called a synod, which is just a fancy name for a meeting. He called a synod, and he called all the bishops and pastors and theologians around to discuss whether or not what Arius was teaching was heretical. But before the synod could make a final decision, Arius and his followers flooded the streets of Alexandria to add pressure on the bishops. People wrote slogans and songs. It was a typical protest like what you see nowadays where people just take over the freeway. It was a theological flash mob, if you will. And then Alexander's crew showed up and then things got hot and a riot broke out. This is all over theology. This is all over whether or not Jesus has a birthday in eternity past or not. But as the people rioted in the streets, the synod of bishops and pastors kept meeting to discuss the issue. This eventually led a few years later in 324 AD into what we now know as the Council of Nicaea. Now to be sure, Arius was a monotheist. He only believed in one God. But Arius only believed in one God, the Father. Arius was not Trinitarian. He did not believe that there was one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He only believed in one God, God the Father. And even then, he would only admit that God became a Father after he created Jesus. Before he created Jesus, Arius did not believe that God was the Father. He was simply the creator. He was first and foremost and foundationally creator. Arius believed that God 
was first creator before he was ever a father, and he only became a father after he made Jesus. So when Arius started talking about God, he did not begin talking about the Son of God. He did not talking about God the Father. Arius began his idea of God by calling him the unoriginate or the uncaused. And what Arius meant by these terms was that God was the uncreated creator. The creator who was not created. He began his discussions and his preaching and his understanding of God by referring to him first and foremost, not as God the Father, but just as creator. The problem, however, with beginning any discussion of God as first and foremost creator is that you are defining your idea of God based upon his works, what he does, that he creates things, and you're not defining him by his relationships by his nature or his essence. Arius began his understanding of God as creator, not trinity. As the creator, not as father. Now, it seems very subtle. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. It's like, is that big of a deal that they're actually rioting over this? But it is a big deal. We must begin our understanding of God, not based on his works, what he does as creator, but based on his essence, his nature, his relationships within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Any concept of God that does not from the outset include the mutual relations of Father and Son and Spirit, the Father begetting his Son, meaning the Son having the same nature or essence as the Father. Any discussion that does not start that way bears no relation to the living God. It is Arian. It is heresy. We must start our thinking, our discussions about God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not just Creator. Now, what group today believes what Arius believed? It's the Jehovah's Witnesses. First of all, they've got God's name wrong because God's name is not Jehovah. That's a made-up name. God's name is Yahweh. But they do not believe that Jesus is God's eternal son. They believe that God created Jesus, that he was the very first thing that God created, and then he became a father. That's Arian. That's heresy. It's not a biblical view of God. Jesus didn't become the son in relationship to his father at his birth and incarnation when he appeared on the earth. Contrary to what Arius was teaching, he was always the son. For all of eternity past, Jesus was the eternal son of God. Now, interestingly, a few years ago, a very notable theologian and famous Bible teacher down in Los Angeles, that most likely all of you know or have heard of, he changed his views to express this and to get in line with orthodox teaching. Anyone know who it was? It was John MacArthur. John MacArthur used to believe that Jesus took the title or the role as son at the time of his incarnation, at his birth in Bethlehem on that first Christmas morning. Now he says this on his website in answer to this question. Is it true that John MacArthur has reversed his position on the eternal sonship of Christ? And here is John MacArthur's reply. 
Careful study and reflection have brought me to understand that Scripture does indeed present the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son as an eternal Father-Son relationship. I no longer regard Christ's sonship as a role he assumed in his incarnation. You can read that on his website, gty.org. See? We need chaperones when we read the Bible. John MacArthur needs a chaperone when he reads the Bible. I don't know if he knows that or not, but he does. We all need chaperones when we read the Bible. We need to read the Bible in community. Paul will admonish the Colossians later in chapter 3 to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's plural. Y'all, let the word of Christ, God's word, dwell among y'all richly. We cannot be trusted all by ourselves with the scriptures. Now, someone eventually came along and helped correct John MacArthur on this issue, but John MacArthur was in error. He believed that Jesus was eternally existent with the Father. That's orthodox. But he didn't believe that this father-son relationship existed until the first Christmas morning. And he has since changed his views on that. So he wasn't in heresy, he was in error. I think you have truth, you can move to error, and if there's resistance and pushback and obstinance and refusal to change, then you slide into the next category of heresy, and that's exactly what happened with Arius. In response to all this, the emperor Constantine called together the church's theologians and pastors and Christian thinkers to discuss the essence, the nature of Jesus and his relationship to his father. And so during the winter of 324 to 325 AD, the first ecumenical council was called in Nicaea in modern-day Turkey to discuss the teachings of Arius. And after many, many meetings and discussions which were centered on God's word, on June, there's, so much more, there's, there's so much more to this. Maybe I'll, we'll come back to it next week. We'll see. But on June 19th, 325, the Nicene Creed was composed, and it affirmed that Jesus the Son shared God the Father's nature and essence as God. It affirmed that Jesus the Son has always existed with God the Father in eternity past and that he was never created. The Nicene Creed made explicit to everyone in Constantine's empire what was already implicitly believed by all the churches. The Nicene Creed is actually the best commentary on Colossians 1.15. I've put it on the cover of your worship bulletin this morning so that you can read it and study it on your own. But I want you to listen as you read it for these phrases that appear in the Nicene Creed because they are direct quotations that Arius and his followers were saying about Jesus. They said things like, There was once when he was not. He was not before he was begotten. He came into existence from nothing. Those are the ways that Arius and his followers were describing Jesus. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. He was not before he was. And he came into existence at some point in time from nothing. He had a birthday, is what they were saying. The Nicene Creed was written to let all churches know that if you make Jesus less than God, you make the gospel less than good. The Nicene Creed said, if you mess up the person of Jesus, then you mess up the work of Jesus. If you get the person of Christ wrong, you get the work of Christ wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. 
And if you get Jesus wrong, then you don't have salvation. You don't have the forgiveness of your sins. And let me tell you, you need your sins forgiven. I need my sins forgiven. If Jesus doesn't have the same essence in nature as God, we're all doomed. We might as well replace the grape juice here with wine and have a party because we're lost. There's no eternal hope apart from Jesus having the same essence in nature as his Father. So what the Nicene Creed did was it drew a circle around what was acceptable to believe about Jesus being God. And that's why the creeds and councils of church history are so important because Arius interpreted Colossians 1.15 differently. My church history prof, Jeff Bingham, says this, the interpretation of scripture passed down by the apostles and preserved by the bishops was a safeguard in the face of heretics who appealed to scripture. So it came from the apostles. Then it went to these bishops, and they kept that line of what was orthodox Christian belief and doctrine. That's exactly what the councils and creeds of church history do. They carry on the tradition that was passed down from the apostles and prophets to the first bishops and pastors in the church. They highlight and they make explicit what is already implicit The creeds and councils of church history draw circles around what we can and can't say about God. They give us parameters that we must stay within when we think about and when we discuss the triune God. They remind us that if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. Because if Jesus is not God and he does not have the same essence in nature as God, then we cannot repeat his words from John 19.30, it is finished. If Jesus is not God and does not share the same essence in nature as God the Father, then we can't repeat Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If Jesus is not God and does not share the same essence in nature as God the Father, then we cannot say Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But because he is God, because Jesus is God's eternal son, and because he has the exact same essence and nature as his father, then we can come to this table today and we can eat and drink knowing that Jesus paid it all, that his life was sufficient That his death is sufficient. That his resurrection is sufficient. That his ascension to God's right hand is essential for us. This is good news, Grace. It's just not heady, weighty theology. The average layman, the average churchgoer in the 4th century was knee-deep in these waters, fighting the battle. It is good news. It is good news for bad people that we can come to this table today and be reminded that Jesus cannot remember our sins. So let's take a moment and let's just confess, let's repent. You know, repentance is just collapsing on Jesus. It's just saying, Jesus, I am a great sinner. I have nowhere else to go. I have sin that needs to be forgiven. And I can only go to you because you are an even greater Savior. You just collapse on him. 
And then you come up here and you eat and drink assurance that you are forgiven, that it is finished, that he paid it all. That's what this table is for, to assure us of what Jesus has done for us because he is God. So let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and our sins are so many. Sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful deeds, and sinful motives behind every thought, word, and deed. Our sins are many. Our sins are great, Jesus, but you are an even greater Savior. We don't confess our sins just to make us feel bad. We confess our sins to make us feel good. We confess our sins to remind us that though they may be great, you are a greater Savior. And so we just collapse on you and what you have done for us. Assure our hearts. Reassure our hearts. Remind us that even as we come to this table that we are in you, in union with you, and that we can eat and drink today with joy and celebrate what you have done for us and what you for what you have done for us we just simply say thank you we are humbled and we are in awe of you and we are in awe that you would descend to save sinners like us as we sang it's not about us jesus it's all for you And it's all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.